I'm going to tell you a secret. I live on Piano Lane. It wasn't intentional, but it wasn't surprising either. I learned the instrument as a child, still play for myself, and the piano, once it's part of your life, tends to stay with you, even when you neglect it for decades. And then it comes back on you in unexpected ways, like living on Piano Lane. Why this should be, why the piano occupies a position of importance in society far beyond that of a mere musical instrument, is the subject of some study. Partially, it's the ability for a child to instantly make pleasing sounds. There's something about the way a piano works. It's so simple. You press the note and it comes out. What is this thing? What? Huh? Well, all right then. You see it in very small children. They gravitate towards the piano and they start sort of hitting it. And the ones who you know are going to get on with the piano will actually stop hitting and start picking out single notes. Partially, it's ties within the family. I remember as a small boy uh, with my grandfather, we used to take the parts off the piano and I used to be fascinated by the strings and the hammers and everything. And I'd watch my grandfather tune. How many moving parts are there in these things? If you were to talk in terms of every little pin, every layer of felt, it must run into thousands, I should think. Partially, it's become a tool for parents to introduce otherwise reluctant offspring to culture. I can't tell you how many parents told me, I don't want him to be Mozart, but I want him to be exposed to the piano. But you need more practice, Sparky. Much more practice. More practice. Children will often go off playing the piano, go back to playing the piano. Why, I'm playing just like my teacher. Go off, go back. It's also a presence so overwhelming that only the simplest declarations can express its meaning in a piano player's life. Piano, to me, is life and happiness. My dad dying, there was a lot of sadness around, but when people would come around on a Saturday night, my mum would play the piano and just everybody smiled. Down at Auntie Skinner, chicken dinner, everybody will be there. Piano Lane isn't a twee name dreamed up by a property developer. It's a historic designation. Here, my block of flats, is built on the site of the Kemble Piano Factory in Stoke Newington. A hundred years ago, one in ten manufacturing jobs in the borough were in piano making. There were 130 piano factories right the way across London. Kemble was a venerable brand when Britain was the center of global piano manufacture. Now, like so much else, that center is in the east, according to Charles Bosom, head of Yamaha UK, the company that bought out Kemble. There's something like half a million pianos made per year now for the Chinese market. Half a million pianos. Where do they all go? Is a good question. Looking at the social history of the piano is like putting your eye to a well-cut jewel. There are many facets. The piano's impact in families, its symbolic meaning in narrative art, its leading role in a society's transition from poverty to wealth. It's a pleasant social history to learn because it's best told in personal anecdote and music. The history begins with the instrument's invention at the very end of the 17th century as a piece of improved musical technology. We had clavichords, which are very expressive instruments, but 
so quiet that you could practice in the middle of the night and your neighbours wouldn't know anything about it. Impossible for public performance. Bill Kibbe Johnson, pianist, piano tuner, and proprietor of the Piano History Centre in Great Yarmouth. Harpsichords, so a bit more powerful, but they have no expression in the keyboard. So the idea was to try and find something that was a bit like a harpsichord, but had more expression so that you could play soft and loud in simple terms. Although technically, piano means at a level. The person credited with inventing the piano is Bartolomeo Cristofori, born in Padua and hired by Ferdinando de' Medici, Duke of Tuscany, in the late 17th century to make musical instruments. He designed several clavichord-like pieces for the Duke before coming up with the improved keyboard machine, the arpicembalo, first mentioned in an inventory of Ferdinando's instruments in 1700. Un arpicembalo di Bartolomeo Cristofori di nuova invenzione che fa il piano e il forte a due registri principali unisoni. The name arpicembalo fell away rather quickly. The descriptive phrase il piano, il forte, dwindled to piano throughout the course of the next century as advances on Cristofori's designs were made primarily in Vienna and London. This piano has what's known as the English single lever action, that's its technical name. Dr. Alistair Lawrence, jazz pianist, piano tuner, and curator of Finchcock's Musical Museum in Kent. All that happens, you press the key down at the front, and at the back of the key there's what we call a jack, which is a stick of wood, which throws up the hammer to the string. And if you look through the strings there, you'll see the hammers rise up, but then they fall back a moment before they hit the strings. That's called the escapement. The escape of the hammer is the secret of the piano, says piano historian Kippy Johnson. If you were to just get that back end of the key to hit the string, you'd get this sort of effect where the hammer stays against the string and blocks it. Basically, the idea is to push the hammer nearly to the string and then let it go on its own so it escapes from the control of the key and sets off on its own towards the string. And this was part of what Cristofori achieved. As the hammer comes up, so the damper, what we call the damper, which sits on top of the string, is raised up. That allows the string to resonate. But as soon as the finger is released from the key, the damper falls back and stifles the sound again. So the whole thing is about this mechanical device that we call the action. That escapement, which was invented by the Italian Cristofori, in the early 1700s, is a key feature of all pianos. As the 18th century unfolded, the constantly improving instrument found its way into palaces, the homes of the urban middle classes, and rural gentry. The piano grew in size and sound. By the 1780s, John Broadwood, in London, was making a grand piano. It would be um, perhaps that's a Viennese square piano to compare. Alistair Lawrence gave me a little tour of the magnificent collection he has restored to working order at Finchcock's. We stopped by one of the earliest surviving John Broadwood grand pianos. It's not too bad. Well, what's interesting about this, we say grand piano, but it's actually quite a delicate instrument. I mean, its length is about eight really? feet. Yes. The wood in the cabinet is actually fairly thin, and the sound, if you could just play it, it would play so, so well. Mm. 
most pianos right up to the 1790s had five octaves, F to F. That was the compass, five octaves. And you can play all of uh, Mozart and most of Haydn, apart from the very late sonatas, on that five octave compass. That's why the piano appears narrow. These extra notes going up to C were added in the 1790s. Now, the, the really interesting thing to me is the pedals yes. come off the balancing legs. They're made of yes. wood, and so they're spread quite wide apart, and they kind of angle in towards your feet mm. rather than being in the centre of the piano, and that you can just touch them like they were the pedals on your car. Mm. Well, these pedals are, in fact, wonderful in a way because the left pedal is what we call the unicorder, one string. And the effect of, of the unicorda, let's say here's three strings per note. And then we press the left pedal and here we have one string per note. So you get a very ethereal, magical quality. And then when it's used in conjunction with the right pedal, the sustaining pedal, then you get... And it was this very effect that Beethoven was wanting in the early 1800s. That's why he discarded Viennese pianos, which had knee levers and didn't have a unicorder, in favour of the English and French instruments, because they had pedals and they had the unicorder, which he wanted to use. And, for example, you get it in the Moonlight Sonata. composers began to rethink the possibilities of musical composition as advances in piano technology took root. The very different types being developed in London and Vienna had a decisive effect on the history of music, says Lawrence. The Viennese piano has more taste and more elegance in sound and better action control, but it didn't become the forerunner of the modern piano because it's weak in sound. They were not looking for power, they were looking for clarity. And it was the English piano that had the honour of being the forerunner of the modern instrument because it just had more guts, more beef, more roast beef in its sound. It's so interesting to hear you say this because when you think of Beethoven, we learn that he's a bridge into Romanticism. And we think of Romanticism as these wild chords and, and fabulous emotion, yet the Viennese piano simply could not yes, deliver that. That's right, that's not the case with the Viennese piano and that's exactly why Beethoven switched in the early 1800s, I think it was about 1801, 1802 he was despairing of the Viennese makers, he wanted pedals and he wanted the unicorda and he wanted power, so he went out and bought himself a, a Paris built Erard, which, which is almost identical to an English piano. And then he got the Broadwood. And he got the Broadwood in 1817, yes. The Broadwood was a gift from the founder of the firm to the great composer. Lawrence says Beethoven composed his late sonatas on it. Of course, most pianos being manufactured were not for palaces and were not being played by composing virtuosi. The piano became embedded in Western culture, as much for its value as a home entertainment machine as anything else. They were no more than square boxes with a keyboard set into them. Built by immigrant artisans, they were cheap and sold in their thousands. Most early pianos made in England, made in London, are square pianos. 
and they were introduced into England by German craftsmen who came over here after the Seven Years' War. They settled in Soho. If you look at it, you can see very clearly it's modelled on the clavichord. In fact, it was one man who invented the square piano more than anybody else. That was Zumper. They were made very much in a functional way, in a way. They were built down to a price to cater for a huge demand. For home entertainment? Mm -hmm. Or did people actually just get engaged and sing? And, and Primarily sing? for home entertainment. Primarily for uh, accompanying singing and other instruments. It has a, uh, this definite charm. Uh, you know, just a little thing, perhaps. The square piano became the center of home life and social life. By the early 19th century, the instrument was becoming very closely identified with women. More and more people bought pianos. There are all sorts of social commentators who talk about the fact that even farmers' daughters have pianos. And of course, the farmer's daughter is one of the important things. Dr. Sophie Fuller of Trinity Laban Conservatory in London. The piano was really important for women. Previously, women had played the harp, the guitar a bit. They didn't play all those instruments that sort of disfigured them, like the violin or the flute. You know, heaven forbid that they should move their mouths and make strange faces and things. But the piano, you, you almost didn't have to change your very, very decorous deportment to play. By the middle of the second decade of the 19th century, the piano and women's relationship to it, and to their suitors, had become a useful way for Jane Austen to tell her readers about Emma Woodhouse and Jane Fairfax. It was but yesterday I was telling Mr Cole I really was ashamed to look at our new grand pianoforte in the drawing room while I do not know one note from another and our little girls who are but just beginning perhaps may never make anything of it. And there is poor Jane Fairfax who is mistress of music, has not anything of the nature of an instrument, not even the pitifulest old spinet in the world to amuse herself with. The way that Jane Austen writes about pianos for her female characters is endlessly fascinating. The kind of um, ins and outs, who plays what, what kind of playing they do, how well they play, how well they're considered to play, who actually listens and who just talks while they're playing. So Jane Fairfax plays well. She plays better than Emma herself does. I think Jane Austen is hinting that Actually, Joan Fairfax is okay, although Emma, of course, dislikes her. Emma would then resign her place to Miss Fairfax, whose performance, both vocal and instrumental, she never could attempt to conceal from herself, was infinitely superior to her own. The piano always allows people to express passion and that can't quite be hidden so it sort of creeps out in a way from austin to thackeray bronte eliot henry james and on into the 20th century the piano was a tool for novelists to reveal character and it couldn't have been that if it wasn't a part of everyday life for those who played or owned one or those who simply heard the sound filtering into the street you must remember this, a kiss is just a kiss. When the cinema came along, the piano became an equally important part of the story. 
whether Dooley Wilson's Sam plays as time goes by again, or Jane Campion turns the instrument into a powerful symbol of civilization, hope, and self, worth risking your life for on a windswept beach at the other end of the world in the Oscar-winning The Piano. Probably the most important facet of the social history of the piano is that it links generations, not just across time, but across continents and oceans and through changes in social class. So can you still stride out? Come on. My Uncle Morty is 86, and as you can hear, the man can still play a bit. I grew up with my father's stories about his little brother, who was making quite a good living playing in New York's jazz clubs when he was still in high school. Playing, not to Uncle Mort's standard, is part of my family history. My uncle still owns the instrument he and my father learned on 80 years ago. I was six years old when I started classical music lessons. And when I was 11 years old, I took a year of what's called popular music. Yeah. And what was the name of your first teacher? Madame Otterly Weinberg. Otterly Weinberg. Did she look like an Otterly Weinberg? Yes, she did, and she was heavily accented. And uh, she was uh, really a lovely woman who encouraged us to play. Right. It was fortunate that I had an older brother, and I would like to mimic what he did, if he was practicing the piano and playing the piano, well, I darn well wanted to do the same thing because I wanted to catch up to him. Oh, so you're giving my father all the credit for your ability? Absolutely. If he wasn't there, I never would have practiced that art. Why was Grandma so keen on your learning? I think my mother felt that to play a musical instrument and appreciating music in general wasn't part of her genes, but she was European-born in the city of music near Vienna, and uh, I think that was very important to her. Actually, my grandmother was born far from Vienna, in the eastern reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the city of Lemberg, which today is called Lviv and is part of Ukraine. It's not likely that the farm she lived on had a piano. But by the time she and her family had made their way up from the Lower East Side to the next episode in their American Dream experience, they had acquired that European signifier of middle-class aspirations. In my grandmother's home, my mother's mother's home, there was a piano. I think they got that while they were in the United States for just a few years. And uh, the children that were born stateside, my mother's youngest sisters, both were afforded uh, musical lessons as youngsters and played the piano. Rachmaninoff's prelude in C-sharp minor. You were laughing at the memory of that. Yes, that was the piece to play at the annual recital once a year. All the students of Otterly Weinberg played a recital and each had a certain piece that they had to perform. And that was mine and uh, kind of my graduation song. Not a lot of 11-year-olds try the Rachmaninoff on for size. My uncle really was that good. But 
jazz or classical. He saw the prospects of making a good living as a performer were limited, so he followed his older brother, my father, into medicine. Music's loss, perhaps. Anyway, this kind of family history meant I can't even remember a discussion about my learning to play piano. One day, I was going to Catherine Daimler's house across the street for lessons, and that seemed okay, even if I was lazy about practice. My story is far from unique. Parents pass the instrument along to children, even if at first we don't always accept the gift. Alan Rusbridger, editor of The Guardian newspaper, is a late bloomer on the piano front, and his forthcoming book, Play It Again, tells the story of his relationship with the instrument he resumed playing in middle age. First chapter is a mother who was a not very good amateur pianist, but loved it and who who made me play it. So she made me play the piano, she made me play the clarinet, I joined a cathedral choir, so I had a childhood full of music, which was because my parents made me. I, I guess that's a sort of fairly common story. And I think it was also a fairly common story that I then rebelled against it when I was about 16, partly because I was enjoying playing the clarinet and I could do that in orchestras, and partly because if you're going to be really serious about the age of 16, you have to choose if, you're going to, if you've got the appetite to do that, you know, which means learning every scale, every arpeggio, learning how to memorise, getting a proper technique. And I just didn't have the appetite for that when I was 16, so I gave up. And when did you start getting an appetite to resume? When I was about 40, my mother died round about then. I inherited her little baby grand, and I found myself playing again. But then, seriously, I found a teacher. You casually mentioned that it was around the time your mother died and you inherited the piano. But, I mean, in a deeper sense, was the loss of your mother and this significant remnant of her passing to you. How much did that influence you in terms of wanting to sit back down? Wow. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure at some level it was connected that that my mother had been the, the reason I played any kind of music. And I suppose inheriting her piano and being very close to her when she died must on some subconscious level have have reignited thoughts of that period when she encouraged me and lit this enthusiasm in me. Playing piano is still transmitted from parents to children, but today it is for slightly different reasons than it was when Alan Rusbridger or my father and uncle learned the instrument. I believe that the piano has lost its singular status as a mechanism of having children become cultured. Annette Leroux, professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, In her book, Unequal Childhoods, Class, Race, and Family, based on detailed interviews with and observations of 88 families, another keyboard coincidence, it was not intentional symmetry, the piano frequently came up. I interviewed an African-American middle-class mother. She is now a very high-level manager. Her husband is a very distinguished lawyer who's also African-American. And when she was a child in a southern town, her parents wanted her to be cultured. She had piano lessons. That was her only activity. But today, her son 
has piano lessons, but he also has many other activities. He has baseball, he has basketball, he has choir, he has church, he has uh, a school play. So the piano is just one of many activities. But her husband also supported it. He had grown up in a very poor home in the South, and he had gone to law school and was very successful. But he seemed slightly sheepish that his son knew information about the piano, which he did not know. And as he said in an interview, quote, I don't know Baroque from classical, but he does. How can that not be a benefit in later life? I'm convinced that this rich experience will make him a better person, a better citizen, a better husband, a better father, certainly a better student. Where piano was once a way towards culture and raising yourself up, now it's just part of a, you know, a grab bag of things that kids are scheduled to do. Well, many parents hoped that it would somehow enhance their children's lives. I can't tell you how many parents told me, I don't want him to be Mozart, but I want him to be exposed to the piano. So they had a vision of their children as being exposed to many important cultural aspects in life, that this was one aspect in broadening the horizons for their children. Professor Leroux began studying that family 20 years ago. Today, the young piano student is a doctor. I'm so happy, oh so happy, don't you envy me. The piano is more than just a source of amateur joy or cultural enrichment passed from one generation to the next. It's an economic phenomenon supporting many businesses. Although, interestingly, these businesses too are often passed from one generation to another, whether making them, selling them, or performing on them. More than 40 years ago, when I first arrived to study in Britain, I wandered into a little pub on Blackstock Road in North London called the Bank of Friendship. Music, not my thirst, called me in. In the back room, somebody was banging away on an upright. An elderly man was leading a bunch of his fellow residents from the old people's home around the corner in an uninhibited sing-along. It was like nothing I had ever seen or heard before. Now, I know some people regard the knees up as an embarrassing cliché, but as an outsider, it seemed a uniquely English thing and very charming. When I get back to my home in Tennessee. <laughs> Pianos were part of pub life then. They had been for decades. And Daisy Hodges was one of North London's top pianists. Widowed at an early age, she supported her family playing everywhere, from Edmonton to Islington, her son Chaz Hodges remembers. Piano is, uh, to me, is life and happiness because my mother was able to go out and earn money playing the piano, which which fed us. I mean, we weren't very well off. There was me and my brother and a half-sister. So piano was great in that respect, and also my dad dying, there was a lot of sadness around, but when people would come around on a Saturday night, uh, my Uncle Bert or Uncle Alfred come round, they'd go round the off-licence and get a quarter brown ale and some crisps and lemonade for the kids. My mum would play the piano and just everybody smiled, so it was happiness as well. One of my earliest memories was sitting underneath the piano when my mum was playing, I just stayed, I just loved the sound of sitting underneath that piano. It just brought everybody together, and uh, that same sort of feeling when my mum used to play uh, in the pub, when I got old enough to go in the pub. Saturday nights were great. Can you remember what kind of wages she got? 
No, but it wasn't much, probably about a pound a night. But she used to have this little wooden box, and I remember it was lined in green felt for added a bit of, you know, supplementary uh, dough to buy some food. And I used to count out the pennies, and quite often there's a lot of foreign pennies in there. But I can still remember the smell of this box. It had a better smell of uh, wood and beer mixed. Chaz built his career as part of Chaz and Dave, but like a lot of kids, he resisted his mother's attempts to get him started on the piano. There was this well-known piano teacher that used to, well-known around Edmonton, and uh, he used to go in to see my mum, and he loved how she played. If you've got any kids, he said, I'll teach them for nothing. And she came home really excited. She said, just this piano teacher. He said he'll teach any of my kids for nothing. He said, you can go to piano lessons. And I went, what do I want to go to piano lessons for? I'm playing football, going fishing, playing with the kids out in the street, you know. And I just thought it was the most boringest thing of going. I feel guilty to this day because she was so excited. And when I went, no, I don't want to go, she was, like, deflated, you know. But now when I saw Jerry Lee Lewis, it changed my opinion of the piano. I have two daughters, uh, both of which play, play rather well. They're still young and taking lessons, but uh, I never took lessons. I do not play. That's Charles O'Mara, one member of the family team that runs O'Mara Me and Piano Movers. Another is his brother Brian. I do not play, never took lessons, but it's just a part of life with us anymore with the pianists. Uh, we all have them. Our kids play them. We don't. <laughs> Omar Amian is a suburban Philadelphia-based firm that's been in existence since 1874. It's tough, arduous work shifting pianos, and Charles says it has put the men in the family into a different relationship with the instrument than most people. Growing up, my father used to use a line, if we played pianos, we wouldn't move them. So I, I, I guess that's why we never played them. We, we were stuck moving them, but uh, uh, today the next generation is, uh, is taking advantage of playing the pianos. People obviously feel an emotional connection to this particular musical instrument. I mean, I don't think people feel quite the same way about the violin they were forced to learn to play on. But people will feel something... It's it's multi-generational. We we get involved in a lot of situations where, uh, from a dollar standpoint, the piano may be worthless, but it has sentimental value. And people will drag the piano along with them through move after move after move until such time that it's literally falling apart. It's not something you can put to the curb and ask your your local trash collector to pick up. They've exhausted all of their resources to try to pass it along, find a new home for it. When that is through, they contact us. If it looks aesthetically pleasing or potentially plays, we'll try to find a home for it. If we can't find a home for it, the reality is it, it's got to go. And when it's time to go, the brothers and their employees load the unwanted instruments onto the back of a truck and about once a month make a run to the local rubbish dump. Today's load was two abandoned uprights. Scavengers had removed the ivory from the keys. The action on one was jammed. The other barely worked. I don't know how many pianos were bumping today. Two. Two. The dump was just what your council rubbish tip is like, a swirl of dust and unpleasant smells. Brian and his partner for this run, Bill, went about their task with efficiency. 
And not to sound mean, but these are going to hit the ground and that's it. And that's it. All right, Billy. Rushing straight out. Hold it there. A minute or two later, a small tractor with a crushing mechanism mounted on the front came along to deliver the coup de grace. Mahogany to splinters, ivory to dust. Eighty years of music making, bringing joy to unknown souls, and these pianos were revealed for what they were. Machines for music making, but machines first and at the last. Machines with a working life expectancy that had been passed. Of course, the life expectancy of a business isn't really all that long either. Here in Camden Town, the making and selling of pianos, which was always a family business, kind of reached its end. In London, piano manufacturing really exploded in the late 18th century in and around Soho. It moved north up Tottenham Court Road and then on to Camden and Islington around the time the canals were opened. It was easier to move the big instruments around by barge than wagon. In all these wanderings, the companies that made pianos stayed in the family. Brinsmead, Challen, and Collard and Collard here on Oval Road. It's a drum-shaped building, very distinctive, five stories high, with massive windows all around each floor to flood the workbenches with light. Today, it's an office block called the Rotunda Building, the name Collard and Collard, once one of the most important names in British pianos, has been erased from the front door. In fact, none of the great names of piano manufacture in London survives. Not far away, a family firm that sold those pianos does survive. Markson's in Albany Street is now overseen by the third generation in the business, Simon Markson. He's an excellent source on the contemporary social history of the piano through the facet of who is buying them now. I don't believe that there's been a change in the sense that we're still getting mums and dads with their kids, vicars, policemen coming in, and doctors. They all seem to be very interested in piano. We'll often get a squad car pulling up and the police will, will roll out and have a look at pianos and try them and that hasn't changed. What has changed slightly is that I think it's more geographical factors where, for example, in the 70s we were hiring a lot of pianos to the Japanese community. In fact, as soon as they arrived at the airport, they would come and see us because they'd know where to come. But then the Japanese school moved away and a lot of Japanese returned to Japan with, with the recession five, six, seven years ago. On the other hand, a, a new wave of immigrants came in from other parts of the world, Chinese community. So it's replaced that to a certain extent. Simon Markson's assessment is confirmed by Yamaha's Charles Bozen. The Japanese market is shrinking. So you, you've tend to found in the last two to three years there's more and more second-hand pianos coming from Japan into our market. Chinese market is still growing massively 
we have actually built a whole factory in China purely for that domestic market. The people who are employed, the actual employees of our factory, you know today that the amount they're getting paid for what they do is so much more than it was. They can afford to buy a better product than they could even two years ago. And they're looking to buy things of value. They're not buying things that you just buy to play and throw away. It's something that's going to last. So electric keyboards, like the ones Yamaha is famous for, don't cut it with today's new Chinese consumer, who responds better to the patter of Lu Zhang, manager of Parsons Music Shop in Beijing. With China's development, people are leading more and more wealthy and materialistic lifestyles. And that leads to more demands on the spiritual sphere, so more and more people want to learn piano. And because people are getting richer, they can afford pianos and lessons. At Parsons Music Shop, mothers and grandfathers determinedly search for the right instrument. It's very important that my son learns to play the piano because it will help him to shape his character, even his temper. He used to be a bit impatient, but now he is improving. It's important to develop a child's personality and intelligence, and the piano can help that. It helps them to understand music, it trains them to memorize things. It can shape their personality. It has nothing to do with famous pianist Long Long. China only produced one Long Long. It's very hard to be like him. I don't want my son to suffer from pressure. I want the piano just to be fun. While the Chinese market is a rapidly expanding universe, recession and changing social patterns are slowing business down in the West. The Omara brothers used to run three trucks moving pianos. Now they only need one. Simon Markson is focusing on hiring out pianos for big events to make up for lost sales and rentals. And in Philadelphia, Al Rinaldi, whose family now owns Jacob's Pianos, slogan, Playing piano makes you smarter, has figured out a very clever way to sell his big ticket item. People will purchase Steinway pianos that don't play the piano because they want to buy the finest. I drive a Bentley. And it makes me feel good when somebody said, let, let me uh, park your Bentley. They don't say, let me park your car. The idea was right in front of me all the time. We could eliminate the objection that the people have that say that they don't play the piano by simply putting a player piano on Steinways. And I researched how important players were in the early years and found out some surprising things. Steinway built the first piano in 1853. The first player piano was built in 1863. Then Steinway developed the duo art, which was the first player piano with expression. And I found out that in the 20s was Steinway's best years of selling pianos right into the early years of the Depression. Because they had this facility. They had it. It really was a home entertainment. It was, it was considered to be home entertainment. When did you come up with this brilliant idea? Uh, at, in the, at the end of March. Since that period of time, we're, we're somewhere in the count of a little over 25 pianos that we've sold as a result of it. So it's been a booming success. Well, in this economy, if you can shift 25 
Steinways in four or five months, you're doing pretty well, right? Uh, yeah, that's that. Yes, that's true. With prices for Steinway grand pianos starting around forty thousand dollars, it's very true. But no amount of gimmickry can replace the pleasure that has formed an important part of my uncle's life for eighty years. We still play now, and then you know, for fun and for games and for gatherings when people have a piano in the house, we sit around and sing tunes, etc., etc. And I, I love it. I, I, I relish it. I feel very good about it, and it's a pleasure. And it's just grand that you can get camaraderie that way. For more than two centuries, the piano has occupied an honored place at the center of Britain's social life. And it's odd to think that a way of people coming together that existed when Jane Austen was forging her lonely trail into literature and lasted well into the 1980s is disappearing forever. The Bank of Friendship doesn't have a piano anymore. Chaz Hodges is philosophical and regretful about it. It won't come back like it was, I don't think, because there is too much uh, pipe music, too easy to flick the switch and fill the place with noise most of the time. But you know, that facet of the piano's history relating to family may be a source of revival. Dr. Alistair Lawrence of Finchcock's Musical Museum purchased Broadwood pianos five years ago. There was more than business involved. For seven generations, his family worked for the firm, building and tuning the pianos that Beethoven so loved. Today, in a small workshop behind the Georgian Manor where the museum is housed, he and a small team of craftsmen are making Broadwood pianos again. Would your great-grandfather, who worked for Broadwoods, have <clears throat> recognized the work methods you use? Oh, yes. Uh, he's over there, if you'd like to have a look at him. Um, this is my great-grandfather on the end. This is a, a photograph from, yes. from what year? This is from 1910, and it shows my great-grandfather at the front tuning a piano. You can see he's got these enormous piano tuners' hands with a special muscle between the thumb and first finger that was developed as a result of turning the tuning key. Mm -hmm. And those are his four sons. Has anyone ever told you you look like your great-grandfather? No, I don't yeah, think I see, that, I see a family it's, it's resemblance. A, some resemblance. All look miserable and stressed. And, uh, <laughs> we all, we have it's, this... the beard, it's the beard. Would you serenade your great-grandfather and your grandfather and, and all of your, your great-uncles on a piano of your own making? Well, I could try, but they might be spinning in their graves, you know, if they could hear me. It does something to the, the spirit, the soul, the chemistry of the brain or whatever. Some people probably get it through running or through yoga or going to the gym. I get it through playing the piano, settling me for the day. And I kind of notice it if I haven't played the piano in the morning. It is this potential. It sits in a room and just waits for someone to come and wake it up. It still has a magic. The sound of the piano is, is a magical noise. Don't try this at home, you know, but uh, if you remove the parts from your piano and, and keep playing, then there's something about what is inside there that draws you in. It's another world. <laughs> <laughs> 